This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see your faces this morning. Hope all is well with you, that you've had a great weekend, that your football team didn't crush your spirit, and or anything like that. So, good to see you this morning. <clears throat> well, first off, I just want to say big thank you to Jason. He did a phenomenal job last week. Let's give him a big hand. I heard numerous people, just not only in the things that he said, but particularly the timing of that message uh, uh, on worry, and so I've heard it uh, referenced all throughout the week, so very encouraging, Uh, and uh, if you didn't hear that, let me encourage you to go back and give a listen to that message. Uh, Second thing I want to, before we get into the, the message this morning, I got a couple of crosses, and if you're not familiar with our cross wall, if this is your first time here, Uh, You know, our cross wall, each one of those crosses represents uh, a family uh, or a person here at our church, that largest one in the middle to represent all of us. And then as we are trying to live out a cross-shaped or cruciform life, uh, we bring our crosses. Each cross is as unique as the individuals who brought them. It's just an expression of our, you know, how we are united in Christ, and yet uh, our individuality, our personhood is still very much expressed. Some really neat crosses up there. I encourage you to take a look at those crosses and see this, you know, just try to uh, picture the story behind each one of those. Uh, They all have such a great story to tell. So I have uh, two crosses this morning. Uh, One, I know that there's going to be a number of guys are going to say, man, I wish I had thought of that. I think he's a Ford fan. No, I, I, <laughs> I couldn't help. I, I'm sorry. So uh, Bob Cook, are you in here this morning? Are you in the service? Okay, Bob Cook. Uh, make sure you get to know Bob. And then uh, this one, uh, Becky Ickstad, are you? I don't see her either. I guess they're both going to be in second service. So uh, that one's a, that's pretty cool, heart and cross. And then a, uh, a, a Chevy logo. See, I did know. I was just, you know, being funny. <clears throat> I just couldn't resist, right? I mean, anyhow. All right. Third thing, third thing, and last thing before we get into the message. Uh, this uh, coming weekend is our Mark DuPont conference, uh, which I am very excited about Mark being here. Uh, we have uh, spared no expense for all five people who were registered. No, I'm serious. We have like five people registered for a conference. Ow. So, if you were planning on coming and you would like us to have Mark DuPont again in the future, it'd be really nice if, uh, like, we didn't just have five people. Seriously. Okay? So, anyhow, Mark is coming this weekend. I'm looking forward to spending time with him, uh, whether anybody else does or not. But I am hoping that you just haven't registered and that you will do so. Take a few moments and do that. All you have to do is click on the thing online and it will take you to the page to register for that. And we would be very much encouraged so we could have a little bit of a head count. All right. Romans chapter 12 this morning. Continuing in Romans chapter 12. Picking up, if you'll remember, 
uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we did verse 1 uh, uh, from Romans chapter 12, drilled down rather deep. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the following week, drilled down to that. We are now at Romans chapter 12, verse 3, and yes, we will finish the chapter today because it's really basically one entire point to be made uh, through the, the rest of those verses. So we're going to do that, but if you keep in mind, I think it's really important we hold all these things together and thinking in terms of uh, the, the, the entire book so that we don't misrepresent what Paul is saying. You know, we started in chapters 1 through 4 talking about uh, you know, how the old creation reveals to us the heart of God, that all of creation uh, is longing, and that the creation itself is good, was created by God to be good, and that through that there is a revelation about the nature and the personhood of God. It's speaking to us about who God is and what the right order of things is. As well, when we see things that are out of step with the way that God put the good creation together, it tells us other things. It tells us what is not right. It tells us what is, is wrong in the world and points to that, and it creates that longing in our hearts for those things to come to fruition, for the fulfillment, ultimately, of uh, God's desire for us to live and dwell with Him forever, to reign with Him, and points out in it how the, the, when man fell, the consequences that came upon the entire creation, so that even though it is distorted by sin and death, we can still see God's good intent in it. Then chapters 5 through 8 explain the idea of the new creation, with chapter 8 being not only the, uh, the, the uh, thrust of those five, 5 through 8, but also being the epicenter, the, the apex of the entire letter, telling us about the heart cry of creation, the longing of the entire cosmos for the revelation of the sons of God, and the establishing of the new creation, what it is to be like. Then, in chapters 9 through 12, which we're wrapping up today, the focus is on the transformative process, how God is working in us and through us. Specifically, a couple of weeks ago, chapter 11 focused on the heart of God toward not only those who were afar off, but His ongoing commitment to the perseverance of the saints, including those who are faithless. Then as we started on chapter 12, which was, is very densely packed, uh, like chapter 8, uh, we, we talked about how it was a significant turning point in the letter with several intricate statements that are often overlooked for the sake of the Romans road approach, but which are significant to the overarching themes of the letter. To this point, we pick up today in verse 3 uh, and finish up the rest of the chapter uh, we could break it down into several points, but really I'm more concerned with the central thrust of the passage, and so we're going to do that today, look at just three to the end of the chapter. So with that said, let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. If you're using an app on your tablet or on your phone, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Please follow along in whatever translation you have in your lap. That one's my favorite. Let's take a look, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So in an effort you know, to hold this whole chapter together and for us to think of it in, in a very uh, you know, coherent way, you know, verse 1, three weeks ago, we said the focus was on the oxymoron of being a living sacrifice, how those two words don't go together, and that it paints for us a picture of what it means to die to self and live for Christ. That dying to self not being the idea that we don't like ourselves, not the idea that we look down on ourselves or think badly about ourselves, but the idea of putting the, the self uh, on the back burner and making God the one we exalt. In other words, that we put His desire, His heart first, and that we bring our heart into line with who He is and what He does in us. And then we said that the only logical response to what God has done, looking at all 12 chapters leading up to that point, all, or the first 11 chapters leading up to that point, 
is that he is saying that the, the act of worship, the logision, the, the only possible logical response, what your Bible may call our spiritual act of worship, our reasonable act of worship, or the preferable act of worship, or any other number of uh, adverbs to describe the worship, the idea is, is that the only logical response would be that our whole lives become worship. The only logical response is that we become those living sacrifices for the sake of what God has done for us. In other words, it's the only way that we could reasonably respond to all that God is, has said, and has done for us. That's the only reasonable response. Anything less than that, anything less than dying to ourselves, anything less than being a living sacrifice is an inappropriate response. Verse 2 then, out of that logical response to worship God, we then are called to renew our minds so that we might be able to do these things. That, so we are now then empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to, but now we are invited to participate. Specifically, it's written in an imperative statement in the original Greek, meaning we must, meaning that it's a command, that we must engage in the process of growing and maturing. In other words, not something that we wait for to happen to us. It's not a Poof, it's not like fairy dust or, or something. It's not like we just say a prayer and then suddenly, zap, we are able to do these things but, or, or that we start to do these things. No, when the Holy Spirit is at work in us, we are then empowered and enabled to do it, but then we must participate in the process of growing and maturing. We engage and we, we spend our energy and our effort in discerning and doing God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Noted in that is that it is possible that if you and I have the Holy Spirit, that you and I can do these things. It's not a theoretical like you ought to do these things. It's not a theoretical in that, you know, somebody uh, uh, somewhere out there ought to be doing these things. But the idea is, in that it being in the imperative and all, is that there's the expectation you can and you must. It is an expectation that you and I would grow in our relationship with Him, we would grow in our understanding, we would grow in the, uh, in the renewing of our minds so that we could know and do His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That brings us to verse 3. Now, building on what he said in those first two verses, he's telling them, to be aware in that fitting response of worship and transformation, to then not think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. In other words, in light of all that we know, all that we have learned up to this point, the question in Paul's mind is, is how could they, referring of course to those Roman Christians, not you, but how could anyone possibly think high-mindedly of themselves? How could anyone possibly be arrogant in light of everything that's just been said? In other words, 
thinking in terms of what he said there in chapter 11, or you know, beginning in chapter 9, uh, talking about election and how God has given all these things to us, not because we deserved it, not because we earn it or anything else, in light of those things, of the fact that we are the kind of people we are and in need of transformation and everything, his, his question is ultimately wrapped up in this is, how in the world could anyone know all of those things leading up to this point? How could anyone look at the witness of the entire Old Testament leading up to this point into the New Testament and ever conclude that there is something spiritually special about them? Now, I know that flies absolutely contrary to everything in terms of American Christianity because I know everybody's special. And in the words of uh, you know, one of my uh, favorite uh, philosophers, and if everybody's special, nobody is. Okay? So nobody is special, right? That, that's the point. He's driving it home that there's nothing in and of you in particular that has prepared you for this moment. You, like everyone else, have been created in the image of God. That's what makes everybody special. And on the flip side is, though, that there is nothing that you've done that has impressed God, that He has given you the particular gifting and calling that He's given you. That's really important. I, I wish every pastor understood that. Hello? Like... And I wish every member understood that about their pastor. There's nothing particularly special about me. This was just the role that I was given. This was the gifting and the calling I was given. It's not because I'm the bestest. Hello? Just take me off that pedal. Yeah, just <laughs> some people are going, oh yeah, I know that. You know, but... But it's important that we take pastors off pedestals. It's important that we take worship leaders off of pedestals. I don't mean that they don't have an obligation to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of their calling. I'm just simply saying that oftentimes when we see someone a, in, in the Christian celebrity world, yes, we have our own celebrities, and they fall or they do something stupid that it seems to uproot other people's faith and, uh, and understanding of, and, and everything that they think about how they're going to relate to God from there. It's completely unhealthy. But likewise, like there is this desire for that celebrity status that oftentimes begins to capture the hearts and minds of the church and where we begin to pursue certain giftings or certain callings and we reject the very way that God's made us. Typically, whenever we're, uh, when we are looking like in Jeremiah and talking about the potter forming the clay, and we, say, and we read that about does, who, how can the clay say to the potter, you shouldn't have made me that way, we will look at that in terms of uh, sinful behavior, we will look at that in terms of fallen behavior, but we don't look at it in terms of giftedness or calling, uh, and yet, yet that applies all across the board that you and I, uh, regardless of your gifting, your calling, your good looks, your not so good looks, your ability to sing, your lack of ability to carry a note in a bucket, 
uh, you know, or, or anything else. Like that is not the measure of who you are in Christ, number one. Nor is it fitting that you and I would like think, well, if I can't do X, Y, Z, then I can't do anything at all. If I can't do this, well, then uh, I have nothing to give. And instead, the picture is, over and over again, that we are put together in a unique way, God knowing us because He knit us together in our mother's womb. He has put us together in a particular way to serve a particular purpose in the building up of the body of Christ so that we can all reach the maturity of the saints. There is this desire in the heart of God that He put us together in such a way and we don't understand uh, what that is, but what we do know is that as He's put us together and we seek His leadership and His direction in our lives and we begin to function in that thing, that that's where we find great joy. Not happiness, happenstance, joy. The overflow of the Holy Spirit working in us in spite of circumstances, in spite of our happenstance, that we're able to function and have this peace with God, not only in the sense of that you and I are at peace with God because of salvation, but peace with, having a, a peace with God in the sense that we trust Him, that we believe Him, that we are letting Him lead us, uh, begins to create a great overflow in our lives that blesses other people around us. One of the greatest witnesses there is, is if you have joy in the Lord, regardless of your circumstance. If you have joy in how, who God has made you to be. If you have joy in your gifting, your ability, and aren't constantly jealous of what other people have, what other people are doing, and all the other things. That's called covetousness. It even happens sometimes when it comes to spiritual gifts. Well, if I could just have a voice like that, if I could just preach like that, if I could just play like that, if I could just have one of the roles that will put me up on the stage. Can I just tell you, as much as I love preaching the Word of God, there are some times when I really like just sitting there. Hello? The importance of what you do in Christ is not measured by its visibility on a stage. The importance of what you do in Christ is measured in, a, in numerous other ways that we're going to dig into here in just a moment. But honestly, like this is such a small part of our life in Christ that in many ways it's fairly insignificant. We think of it in terms of significance, but the greatest significance is actually comes in what flows out of us using the gifting that God has given us. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. In other words, why would anyone be arrogant? And specifically, in this particular context, Paul is building on his warning to the Jewish Christians. Remember, in the first few chapters of Romans, the problem was that the Jewish Christians were high-minded, looking down on Gentile sinners. And he reminded them, 
Romans chapter 3, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. I know we like to use that verse to kind of excuse bad behavior and things like that. That's not what he was talking about there in Romans chapter 3. He was telling those who knew and were in covenant relationship not to look down on people who were not in covenant relationship, i.e. the world, Gentile sinners, i.e. people who aren't in church, i.e. the people who vote differently than you, think differently than you, live differently than you in the world, do not think more highly of yourself because I'm not like that Gentile sinner out there. Do not think that there's anything special about the fact that you're doing the bare minimum. Do not look down on the world. That's what he was telling, the Gent- telling those Jewish Christians. Now they've got... Gentiles coming into the church, they're no longer Gentiles, now they're called Greek Christians, and he says, don't look down on them just because they don't have your background. Don't look down on them because they don't have your education in the scriptures. Don't look down on them because they weren't raised in the church. Don't look down on them and stop looking down on the rest of the world because here's the thing, you have the word of God and you don't behave any differently than they do. Mm, I'd almost think I could preach. And so then, now he's including the Greek Christians, Jewish and Greek Christians. He says, he's, he's using the us, he's using the plural. In other words, he's saying, you know, just like those Jewish Christians could be kind of high-minded and look down on you guys, I'm telling you that none of you, none, have any place to look down on anybody else because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's not using those words again, but he's built an argument through the entire scope of the letter, and he's come to this point, and he's saying, do do you not understand? I mean, as you're pressing in and you're growing, like the one thing you ought to be obvious is that, look, this was by the grace given to you. There's nothing that you did to deserve it. There's nothing about your gifting and your call that makes you special. And what I love best about that is he lumps himself into the list. For I received this this commission and this message. I received what I am doing. I received my apostleship by grace. Now, usually when we read that, what we read is, Jesus did the, waved his wand over me, and poof, I was a super Christian. I was an apostle. We, that's, what we, that's how we use grace most of the time, is we use it like a thing. We act like, okay, well, I got this much grace, and you get this much grace, and, and you know, I got this much grace because I'm an apostle. I'm special. And in, instead, what Paul is saying is, Just like you were called, maybe to prophesy, maybe to give generously, maybe to show hospitality, whatever gifts and calling you received, like that's me too. I am an apostle not by choice, not by the will of men but because it was given to me to do. 
I, can I just point out to you, when you go back to Acts chapter 7, and Paul is getting his commission, and Ananias is arguing about having to go pray for Paul. You know, he says, Ananias, I want you to go pray for this guy Saul of Tarsus. He's over on Straight Street. And he goes, oh, wait a minute. Do you know who the... Isn't it funny how we talk to God? <laughs> wait a minute. Do you know who this guy is? Lord, I have heard all kinds of horrible things about this guy. You know, kind of like your neighbor or the person you don't like or that ex-in-law or whatever. God, I... Don't you know who this person is? I mean, like, I've heard horrible things about him. And he says, not only does he say yes, but listen, this is the call of an apostle. Next time you're thinking it might be like an awesome thing to be an apostle or to be something else other than what you are, he says, yes, you shall go to him and you will show him how much he should suffer for my name. That's the calling of the Apostle Paul. You know the guy that wrote two-thirds of your New Testament, the guy that everybody wants to be like? What was the identification of his calling? And I will show him just how much he will suffer. Did you know that's actually the calling card of every apostle? The most Mature in our minds, the most gifted. The identity of an apostle is that they suffer. That is first and foremost the marks of an apostle. First and foremost. Let that maybe reframe your thinking about the next time someone calls himself an apostle. So he says, I received this commission and this message by the same means that you received it. Therefore, whatever gift or calling you've received, it's, it's not of your power, it's not of your holiness, it's not of your specialness. It's what was given to you for the sake of others. So if it's prophecy or service or faith or teaching or exhortation or giving or leading, whatever it is, do that fully with all the grace and power which was given you. Do it with a full measure of everything that God has given you. Don't, don't hold back. Don't restrain. Don't treat it as something light. Don't dismiss it. Don't make light of it. Don't think if I only had this gifting instead of that gifting. Like you press into everything that God has given you. And do so without any statement of your personal value. Whether I wish I got to be something more or I got to be something less. But critical to your understanding of this charisma is that just like election is not by your merit, neither is your gifting an expression of merit. You're not called by, gift, by merit. You are not gifted by merit. It says nothing about you. Nothing. If you have that gift, awesome. You don't have that gift, it's, you're not downgraded. However, how you behave in the administration of your gift 
How you treat others as you serve. How you treat others as you prophesy. How you treat others as you proclaim, lead, exhort, give. Now that, that tells us a whole lot about you. Like if I can't be content in the gifts I've been given... If I can't be humble in the position I've been given, that says a lot about you. But regardless of whatever gifting or ability I've been given by the Holy Spirit, regardless of whatever commission I've been given by the Holy Spirit, my attitude with which I serve tells you a great deal about me, whether I'm high-minded or humble of spirit, or anything in between. Whether I'm a person who loves those who aren't like me, or I love only those who are exactly like me. That's why he comes to verse 9 and he says, love must be real. See, he's making a summary statement of all those giftings, and he's saying basically that your gifting, apart from love, is worthless. He said it's something very similar in 1 Corinthians when he said, if I have all mysteries that I can, I can fathom all mysteries, if I know all of these things, if I give my body to, be, to the flames to be burned, if I, if I do all of these things but I have not love, context being not just love for spouse but love for the body of Christ, if I do not love, if I am not love, I'm nothing. See, Paul's very consistent across the letters, although he has a different theme in each letter, the thoughts of which undergird those, of how he's leading to those conclusions, it's still very much the same. It's interesting as he's talking about that list of gifting and ability there in Corinthians, he's doing the same thing here in Romans, and he says, if you have all these things, but you're haughty and high-minded, it's worthless. But if all of these things are to be done properly, then, then love must be authentic. It must be real. Whatever you do, do it with love and respect and brotherly affection for the body of Christ. Then, then it will be of great value. If, you renew, if your mind has been renewed and you're doing the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, then your spiritual gifts ought to impact the lives of others for the better. However, if you are not renewed in your mind, you do not understand what Jesus did for you, the likelihood is that you will exploit your gifts to exalt yourself to be high-minded and unspiritual. Let me say that one more time. If you are renewed in your mind then in doing the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, your spiritual gifts will impact the lives of others for the better. However, if you are not renewed in your mind, and you do not understand what Jesus did for you, the likelihood is that you will exploit your gifts to exalt yourself, be high-minded, and unspiritual. Then he says, so hate what is evil. You know what he's saying there? That when we use our gifts in a high-minded way, when we use our gifts and exploit them for our own benefit, 
when we use the things that God has given us only for ourselves, that's evil. Hate what is evil. Hate high-mindedness. Hate the very attitude of religious superiority. I mean, really, can you think of anything that makes the most, I, I just can't think of anything more illogical than religious superiority. Because in religious, I mean, by the very nature of a relationship with God, isn't it that you're saying, man, I need you, God. I need your hope. I need your strength. I need your power. But boy, does that guy need a lot of hope and power. Like, those two things don't go together, do they? We hate the very attitude of religious superiority. Anything that divides us and hold fast to the, and stick to those things that are good. Then he tells us what holding fast to what is good looks like. He gives us 18 examples. Just a few. 18, you know, and it's not an exhaustive list. But, you know, he tells them, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Number four, rejoice in hope. Number five, be patient in tribulation. Number six, be constant in prayer. Number seven, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Number eight, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Number nine, rejoice with those who rejoice. Ten, weep with those who weep. Eleven, live in harmony with one another in the body of Christ. Number twelve, don't be haughty, but associate with those who are lowly. Thirteen, never be wise in your own sight. Fourteen, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Fifteen, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sixteen, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says Yahweh. 17. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you heap burning coals on his head. 18. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You find that list challenging? I, I do. I, I can hardly get past number one on the list, right? I mean, uh, uh, some of you are really easy to love, you know. Some of you are kind of like a Peter, you know. Occasionally you do something goofy, but, you know, most of the time you're easy to love. Some of you are like a John, little little son of thunder going on there. But, you know, yeah, most of the time you're faithful. And, but, you know, some people are more like Judas. I don't, I don't mean y'all. I mean, you know, like other people at other churches, other places, not any church I've ever pastored, but. You know, if I'm, here's what I do know. I bet some of you have had a hard time loving me or other staff members or even one another, right? See, the conviction I feel when I read this 
is that Paul was saying, if you can't love one another with brotherly affection, then it's because you obviously think too highly of yourself. Does anyone else feel that burn? Because trust me, I'm preaching better than I live. How about you? Do I always love the people that are not being lovable? I mean, it's one thing to forgive Peter and John. It's another thing to forgive Judas, right? Or is it? Well, then I feel pretty good about, you know, two through four, you know. You know, I got those ones going for me. Uh, maybe not you, but I, I'm, I'm going pretty good there. And then, you know, number five, patient and tribulation. You know, if I'm honest, it kind of depends on the day. How about you? Some days, tribulation I can handle. Other days, I'm short with people, unkind. My tip. My cup tips easily. Number six, feeling pretty good about that, constant in prayer. Number seven, the needs of the saints in showing hospitality. Yeah, pretty good about that. Number eight, blessing those who curse me. <laughs> sure. You know why it's hard? Because if I'm honest, I think too highly of myself. See, in my mind, I'm convinced that I didn't deserve that. Isn't that what we say when someone hurts us like that, mistreats us? I don't deserve that. But if I were more honest with myself, I might wonder why wouldn't a few people curse me? I mean, didn't did everyone that I've ever yelled at, cursed at, did they really deserve it? Really? One of my favorite writers and mentor, Dallas Willard, asked the question. He says, you know, when something evil happens, he says, you know, the first thing that we do is we go, wow, isn't that tragic? How could that happen? He goes, yet whenever... Something good happens, nobody goes, wow, that's amazing. How could that happen? He says, are we actually aware of who we are outside of Christ or even who we are in Christ, the, the, the effects of the ruined soul? Shouldn't it be every time something good happens, we go, wow, wonder why God would do that in this world? He goes, instead, we think so highly of ourselves that we're taken off guard when evil happens in the world. Why would that happen? Why would somebody do those things? Because there's sin in the world, that's why. Because we live in a fallen world, that's why. Because I know the degree of fallenness that's right here when I look in the mirror, that's why. Because when someone goes to war against me and it's crushing my spirit, that I think destructive thoughts, even if I don't act on them. Don't you? If you don't, God bless you, but I do. 
Is it any wonder that somebody would act on those? I do pretty well with 9 through 12. But then 13, 13 can be a trap, you know, uh, that whole thing of never be wise in your own sight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Depends on the day. 14, repay no evil for evil, but only give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Hmm. Makes me question some of my responses. How about you? 15, I do try to live in peace with others. 16, I, I do pretty good, but 17, man, all that heaping of coal. I mean, maybe in a moment I can do good for just a moment when someone does wrong by me or have done wrong by me consistently, and I can be nice in a moment. How about you? But on a regular basis, being kind to people who are difficult, kind to people who can regularly curse me, being kind to people who regularly are undermining me. Going the extra mile of feeding and serving. Yeah, I do think too highly of myself. How about you? Of course, I would never say it in the moment like that. Instead, I say it like this. Well, my time is too valuable to keep giving them my time. I don't have bandwidth to put up with that. Yes. Yes, I do think too much of myself. I'm not saying that you should not have healthy boundaries. I, I, I am aware that we all need healthy boundaries. But you know, I can be... I can have healthy boundaries and still be generous in spirit toward those who are unkind to me. And probably the last one is such a constant. Do not overcome evil by evil, but, become, but overcome evil with good. It would seem to be obvious, but then again, all too often we wish people harm if they'd done evil to us. Political enemies. Maybe if I put names to it. Biden or Trump? Pick your enemy and the effects it's had on your life. I can tell you right down the middle of our congregation. Maybe an ex-spouse or ex-in-law. What about the person who cost you your job when they lied about you? What about the drunk driver who took the life of your family member? No, I'm not suggesting that we be a doormat. I am not a pacifist. Nor am I codependent. I'm, I'm not talking about... I'm, I, I'm talking about you and I actively taking the situation in hand by serving people in the name of Jesus whom I have ought against. Because if I'm honest enough to know, then I would say to myself, 
except for the grace of God, there go I. You know, it's hard to take advantage of somebody who willingly does what they do. Knowing and doing the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is not just some religious ideology to be believed, nor is it behaving myself in moralistic ways. Knowing and doing the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is the power of Christ to live differently and to bring the power of Christ and the message of the cross into the everyday reign and rule of death and sin and and walk in the counter spirit of the love of God and the will of God. It is bringing life where there is death. It's bringing right action where sin reigns. And the evidence of the transformation is the overflow of a renovated heart and a renewed mind. And this is what it looks like. And when we just make excuses instead of making a difference, oftentimes what we are saying is just simply that God isn't able. Sometimes what we're saying is, well, I'm just the exception to the rule. I know what it says, but I just can't. You're literally contradicting God's word. I just can't is actually not a legitimate excuse. Here's the thing. I am convinced that those gathered in this room don't believe any of those things. You do believe in the power of the Spirit. You do believe that you can. You know in moments you can. Uh, you see the evidence in different things, and yet at times in our frustration, in our pain, or in our difficulty, in the midst of being pursued by enemies, like it's easy to just use excuses instead of pressing into God, instead of asking for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Oftentimes we find ourselves in those moments and what we do, shockingly, surprisingly, is we actually quit praying. We quit asking God for help. We just throw up that occasional prayer, oh God, oh God, but we just keep moving. But we actually like stop seeking His face, stop seeking His comfort, stop seeking His direction, stop seeking His strength. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves way down the line where we've done a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't want to do, acted in a way that we find totally unbecoming, and then suddenly we go, wow, I haven't prayed in like weeks or months. How did I get here? Walk it back. You go back to the root. I made some choices. I silenced the voice of God. I quit listening to the nudge of the Holy Spirit. I did what seemed best to me. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end leads to death. Maybe you feel defeated. Maybe you feel like you don't know how. Can I say to everyone that if you feel like you just don't know how, I want to invite you to join me for class starting September 28th, the Functional uh, Christian Spirituality Workshop. 
I'd like to encourage you to be a part of that. Please actually register. Be really helpful for me to have that number for materials. But listen. Part of this is turning our confidence toward God. God, I, I believe you in the midst of this. God, I'm inviting you into that space. My hardships and my difficulties, as well as the good times, the, 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 the things where I feel like I'm losing ground. Like God, I invite you into the space. I invite you into my heart and mind to speak to me whenever I'm not uh, willing, when I don't want to, uh, when I am wrestling with, the, with oughtness, when I'm wrestling with what people have against me, when I find myself in the midst of the fight. Like I, I, I choose right now to stop my forward progression and stay in this place where I hear from you and hear your voice and I don't move forward in my own strength. Could you use some prayer today? If you could, just let me invite you to stand up right where you are. Could be anything. Could be that you need prayer today for... Uh, hardships and difficulties. It could be you need prayer for financial stuff. It could be that you need prayer for uh, some social things going on in your life. could be that you need some prayer this morning for uh, the power of God to bring healing into your body, whatever it might be. If you need some prayer this morning, let me invite you to just go ahead and stand right where you are. And prayer team, let me invite you. Um, we're not going to do a separate altar call. This is it. So uh, if you see somebody standing, let me encourage you to go ahead and pray with them this morning. Anybody else? If you need some prayer, go ahead and let me invite you to stand up. And then if you see someone standing, please go over and pray with them. All right, let's pray. Father God, we just want to thank you for this morning and for the opportunity uh, to be gathered together. Lord, and my prayer is that for our gatherings, that we would increasingly move to a place where we stop treating it like a show. Just Holy Spirit of God, my prayer is that you'd begin to show each and every one of us what it means to be a part of the gathered, of the assembled, of the called out people of God, and to walk in our giftings and in our callings. But more than that, what does it mean to spur one another on to love and to good deeds? And have I done that simply by singing a song or is there something more that you desire of me this morning? To be the hands and feet of Jesus. To step outside of my comfort zones.
to ask for help when I need it, to offer help to those in need. Father, move us from the place of being an audience that audits your word to the people of God gathered who minister your word to one another. Thank you, Holy Spirit of God, for your presence. Continue to lead us, to shape us, and to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.